I V M. We're in a strange place, bustling with activity, surrounded by people who look nothing like those whom we have seen in earlier episodes of this season. It's been a little more than a century after the death of the Buddha, and we are already in a world totally different from the one that he used to inhabit. There's a company of cavalry riding past us, the riders wearing flowing armor of cloth that covers them from head to toe, wielding short spears with short cloaks fluttering behind them. These must be Persians, their skin the color of golden wheat. Many of them sport thick black moustaches. Watching them pass are a jeering group of sunburnt, pale individuals, some of them already drunk despite how early in the morning it is. They wear plain dyed tunics and hoot and make obscene gestures as the cavalrymen pass. An officer wearing a cuirass of stiff linen and greaves of bronze comes running up and yells at the men, who stand to attention grumpily and then shuffle away. They seem Mediterranean, Greek perhaps. Let's explore this place. Men are gathered around cook fires. Oxen and mules and camels fill the air with their sounds and smells. Here and there we can hear music played on stringed instruments and flutes. The weather is chilly and dry, very different from the balmy climes of the eastern Gangetic Plains, where we have spent most of this season. We pass drill yards where companies of these sunburnt people are drilling with long pikes, almost 20 feet long, in companies hundreds strong. Wait... Something about these guys seems familiar. We've seen those pikes a long time ago on Echoes. The same pikes that crossed the heaving waters of the river Jhelum on a rainy night in 326 BC that slaughtered the elephants and infantry of the Indian King Porus in the very, very first episode. That can only mean one thing. This is the army camp of Alexander III of Macedon, the brilliant, brutal, unbalanced man known to history as Alexander the Great. As we look around, we see people from all around the ancient world, fighting, arguing, drinking, laughing, there are Sogdians, Bactrians, Parthians, Iranians, Greeks, Mesopotamians, Levantines, Ionians, Anatolians, and Macedonians. You might have thought that the followers of the Buddha were diverse, and they were. They came from across the Gangetic Plains, but the diversity here is the diversity of an entire world. The streets of the camp babble with tongues that we have never heard before. There are also Indian mercenaries here, wearing their hair in beautiful top knots. Swaggering around wearing little more than loincloths, muscles rippling in the mild sun. They look rather different from the swarthy men of the Gangetic Plains, and they speak very different languages. These are people from the northwest parts of the subcontinent. But as we walk, we also pass more and more Indians who are evidently not mercenaries or warriors. 
we see women and children chained, bruised, beaten. They stare at us with hungry, helpless eyes. Merchants are squabbling in front of them with Greek officers, agreeing on prices and dragging away these people like they are merchandise. Alexander has taken thousands of slaves in his campaigns in India, and here they are being sold off to the merchants that buzz around his camp like vultures around rotting carrion. The mood of the camp doesn't seem very optimistic. There are clumps of Greeks standing around resentfully arguing, many of them drunk. We need to find out what's happening, but what they're saying is all Greek to me. Let's wander around a bit more and see what turns up. Wait, who's that? Someone lying in a ditch there. Oh, I can smell the wine from here. Wait, there's something familiar about him. That garland of flowers draped around one ear. Mr. Brainy from Shavati? Mm. What the f***? How much did I drink last night? Wait, where's my money? That f- Mananda. Mr. Brainy, it's me, Anirudh. We met in Shavati uh, almost uh, 150 years ago. Shavati? Mm. Who the f- wants to go to Shavati? It's full of those gangetic degenerates. Mm. Say, do you have any water? Uh, hang on. Uh, look, there's a water carrier. Uh, one bag, please. Here you go, Mr. Brain. Will you stop calling me that? Hope I amazed it's bright over here. And loud. No, you fool. I am Mr. Fighty, the bravest mercenary in all of Gandhara. Mr. Fighty, what's going on in the camp? Why does the mood seem so restive? Mr. Fighty is scratching himself with a glassy expression. Ah, uh, Mr. Fighty? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? These Yavanas are absolutely crazy. The big man wants to go and attack the Gangetics. The big man? You mean Alexander? Yeah, man, you would think that after he lost so many men to old King Puru that the big fellow would have decided that he should just go home and smoke some weed and take a break for a while. But no, he wants to conquer all the way to the end of the world. Can you believe that he thinks that there are only 600 miles to go before he reaches the world ocean? These white people, man, I don't know where they get their harebrained ideas from. These pieces of shit for brains. Mr. Fighty, please stay with me. I'm, I'm confused. So Alexander wants to go to the end of the world and he wants to fight the Gangetics to do it. Um, why is the army stuck here then? We're obviously not in the Gangetic Plains. Actually, where the hell are we? And who are all the enslaved people back there? Well, which f***ing rock have you been living under, Traveller? The whole world always knows where the big man is. I myself went with a bunch of my brothers to join him when he was at Persepolis. Say, have you been to Persia? Good gods. That is one hell of a place. They have inns along the highways and soldiers patrolling them. People can just go wherever without worrying about bandits and random chiefs asking for free shit. Can you imagine? And my God, Persepolis. My father always told me that it was the grandest city in the world. Second only to Babylon. 
the statues and pillars and buildings there. Man, never seen anything like it. Huge. Absolutely gigantic. Now, I'm a pretty big guy. And I barely come up to the plinths of some of those wingy man bull thingies they have. Of course, these Yavanas destroyed and looted the whole bloody city. But what was left? Man, that blew my f- mind. I wish I could have seen it when the King of Kings used to live there. Alexander calls himself that, but the guy is no king. Kings are supposed to build and protect. I haven't seen that guy build or protect shit in all the years I've been with him. How long have you been with him, Mr. Fighty? I don't remember, man. It wasn't too bad when I started out, you know. The big man was always giving us free shit. Wine, slaves, gold, loot. You name it. Made some good friends too. And saw some weird places. I was a starry-eyed idiot. I only began to realize what's wrong with him when he crossed from Bactria into Gandhara. And after, he started calling himself a wine god. Diana, I think. Though apparently the crazy bugger has been calling himself a god since long before. Thinks his father was a snake or something. Gandhara. Are you from Gandhara, Mr. Fighty? Yes, I am. At least my mom is from there. Dad was a Persian soldier at the Takshila Satrapi. Such stories he told me, man, those Persian kings. Kurosh, Kashayarsha, Daryayavush. Now those were some kings, man. Gangetics try, but they aren't quite there yet. And this Alexander fellow, too. The guy's a f***ing psychopath. He just wants power. He just wants to kill and conquer for shits and giggles. Because he can. But then all these Yavanas are like that. Don't tell them I said that, though. Menander and his thugs already beat me up after the dice game yesterday. And all these Yavanas hero-worship the big man. I don't know why they respect him. The guy fights next to his soldiers like some sort of commoner and they love him for it. Not like how the good old Persian kings used to fight, ordering their soldiers from behind like good noblemen. And every time this Alexander gets his ass whooped, which is always, the Yavanas go nuts and burn and kill and rape and torture. Man, what they did to the Asakas. What I did. They made me do it, man. You have to believe me. I can't look those poor wretches in the eye anymore. I'm not the one you should be asking for forgiveness, Mr. Fighty. The enslaved people are right there begging for your help. But tell me about these Yavanas. If they worship Alexander so much, then why are they all standing around muttering? Where is this big man? Uh, oh, he's sulking. Sulking? Sulking in a haze of booze and drugs. Difficult to say with that guy. The thing is, and don't tell anyone, the Yavanas have been asking us about the Gangetics. They like to collect intelligence to plan their attacks, see? Now the big man's intelligence guys are confident he can beat the Gangetics. He wiped the floor with old King Daryayavush of Persia, didn't he? Gangetics aren't shit next to him. But uh, I got drunk and... Uh, what did you do, Mr. Fighty? Look, Menander is an infantry captain, right? Guy's been with Alexander since before Alexander's balls dropped. Now, Menander and I were drinking and cuddling the other day and he asked me how big the armies of the Gangetics were. So first I said, they're so big, only your mama is bigger. 
Then he got all serious and he asked me again. So I randomly said King Ograsenia of the Gangetics had 20,000 cavalry, 200,000 infantry, 2,000 chariots and 4,000 elephants equipped for war. And I said the Gangetics were just waiting for the Yavanas to come so they could grind them into meat paste. I just made it up because I wanted to see Mananda shit his tunic a bit. 4,000 elephants? Anyone would shit their tunics if they heard that, Mr. Brainy. Fighty! Who the f*** is Mr. Brainy? Anyway, yeah, Mananda turned the color of spoiled curd and went running to tell his men and officers about it. Then they asked old King Puru about it. Crafty fellow he is, hanging around the camp these days to try and get free shit from Alexander. Now, of course, Puru wants the Yavnas to f*** off, so he said, yes, absolutely. And he also said the Ganga River was 32 furlongs wide and 100 deep, and that King Ograsenia was waiting to f*** Alexander on the other side, just like he had been waiting on the banks of the Jhelum before Alexander whooped him. Then Alexander also shit his tunic. And then what happened? Well, news got out everywhere and the Yavanas are scared of elephants and of Indians now. So they told Alexander they'd had enough of raping and killing and wanted to go home and be with their kids for a while. Not such a bad idea if you ask me. It'll keep them away from the more um, civilized parts of the world. But Alexander can't handle anyone questioning him. He's like a baby. Just can't take no for an answer. So he's been sulking. And that brings us to today morning. Mr. Fighty, you mean to tell me that fake news and viral gossip has brought the deadliest conquering army the world has ever seen to an absolute standstill? Yeah, man. You know, sometimes I genuinely wish the Gangetics would get their shit together and come and whoop this Alexander and the other Yavanas. But man, I've seen enough to know that one conquering army is as bad as another. This kid in my company, Chandagutta, claims he has a plan to kick out the Yavanas after he leaves. But he always shits himself whenever he sees a Yavana officer. Been getting awfully pally with old King Puru though. That kid has something evil in his eyes, I have to say. Anyway, I need to get going. Uh, gotta go and wash this puke off and find my boys. See you around, traveler. Mr. Fighty wanders off. hiding his face from the slaves as they scream at him in his language and beg him to save them off in the distance there's a trumpet blast and cheers begin to erupt across the camp all of a sudden the groups of greeks and macedonians standing around arguing drop everything and exchange grins alexander is coming out alexander has something to say They all run away in a crowd, shrieking and hooting to hear what their king, their hero, their god has to tell them. I wish we could stay and watch, but the Gangetic planes are calling us. Let's leave these Yavanas to their dark and violent games, my friend. We have our own stories to tell. My name is Anirudh Kanisati. Welcome to Echoes of India, a history podcast. The campaigns of Alexander III of Macedon are among the most earth-shaking events of the early historic period, ranking on par with the career of Siddhartha Gautama, and like Gautama, inspiring generations of weebos and wannabes for centuries after him. Again, like Gautama, Alexander cast this long, semi-divine shadow over history and is practically idolized and worshipped as an ideal king, just as Gautama is worshipped as an ideal teacher. His legacy is actually pretty crazy if you think about it. 
I grew up in Hyderabad in the South Indian state of Telangana and Hyderabad's twin city is called Secunderabad derived from Iskandar and thence from Alexander so technically there's an Alexandria all the way down in South India thousands of miles away from Greece but I'm getting nerdy again coming back to the point just as a farmer friend in episode 4 revealed that not all of Gautama's contemporaries saw him as a savior Mr. Fighty has revealed to us that not all of Alexander's contemporaries saw him as some kind of ideal king. Alexander is an interesting chap in South Asian history, not just because of his cultural memory, which was imported as part of broader Persianate cultural flows in the 12th century, but also because the guy left such an enormous impact on the world in general and on history writing in particular. Imagine that after conquering much of South Asia, the world's mightiest power the british empire tried to conquer afghanistan and then the afghans led by some 20 year old dude not only defeated the british but went on to conquer britain from them and it up dividing it among their warlords and made pashto the lingua franca of the british isles that's basically alexander some random chap from a backwater kingdom in the balkans who erupted into a world that was much more populous cultured rich and urbanized than his own and ended up totally transforming it within little more than a decade and because of the impact that he made the records that he and his fans left behind we also get to learn about a south asia that is very different from that of buddha and ajatashatru 326 bce when we saw alexander's camp is about 150 years after the probable death of the buddha and already here mr fighty is telling us of a world that seems barely recognizable from where we started this season. We began the season watching the many peoples who call themselves Aryas enter the lush and thickly forested Gangetic plains, squabbling and warring with each other. We saw their societies evolve and transform. We saw caste emerge, we saw inequality taking root, and we saw ideas develop, flourish and spread. We saw the beginnings of a truly powerful kingdom in Magadha. in the 5th century BCE but Magadha was still opposed by many rival states now in 326 BC Mr Fighty knows only of one mighty empire across the Ganga what he calls the Gangetics and what Greek historians called the Gangaridae Mr Fighty is a fictional character of course but much of what he said is basically true after the difficult battle with King Puru on the Jhelum river Alexander fully intended to try and enter the Gangetic plains but his soldiers mutinied after hearing stories of the immense armies and vast numbers of elephants of the Gangaridae. So who the heck are these Gangaridae? Who is this king Agrasenia that Mr. Fighty mentioned? Well, he probably belonged to one of the most important and enigmatic of all Indian dynasties, the Nandas. In the century and a half after the death of the Buddha, the wars that we saw beginning in the last episode gradually grew to engulf much of the Gangetic plains. Powerful blue-blooded military aristocrats like Ajatashatru, wielding the power of Magadha, gradually conquered kingdom after kingdom until the entire river system of the Gangetic plains was controlled by Magadha. Now, we often think about the unification of various parts of India as some kind of historical inevitability. But that's not really how history works at all. The kingdom of Koshala, for example, had a proud history of its own. Why would it submit to the control of some distant monarch in Magadha, especially if that monarch had instigated the death of its men in battle? 
how was it profitable for the kings of magadha to extend their control into territories which had their own loyalties without losing their military resources and constant rebellions let's see how this old koshalan man for example thinks about one of the dynasties who succeeded ajatashatru you not are you bastard you killed my sons and hung them from the gates of kavati <laughs> Yes, boys can torture me all they want. They can kill me. But I will never bow to any king of Magadha. No f- king of Magadha will ever rule in Kolkata. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of information from ancient India to answer this question. but we do have examples from elsewhere in the world you see in comparison to the way this old man thinks what magadha mr fighty whom we met earlier is evidently in total law of another distant ruler who similarly conquered his homeland so let's talk a bit about persia the most powerful empire of the ancient world the empire that alexander conquered roughly around 550 bc perhaps even before the birth of siddhartha gautama The bloody battlefields of West Asia were shaken by the emergence of a new conqueror, Khorosh, king of Anshan, known to history as Cyrus the Great. West Asia was no stranger to brutal and violent empires. It had seen them rise and fall in endless succession from the time of Sargon of Akkad in 2300 BC in modern Iraq. Sargon, incidentally, already lived in a globalized world and boasted of trading with the Harappans. Now roughly a thousand years later as we saw in episode 1 of this season one group of central asian peoples calling themselves aryas entered south asia after the decline of the harappans similarly another branch of people also calling themselves aryas but with very different religious ideas entered the iranian plateau we call them indo-iranians as the descendants of aryas and the peoples of northern india had battled and evolved over the centuries So had the descendants of these other Aryas and the people of the Iranian plateau constantly struggling against each other as well as against the much more powerful empires of Mesopotamia or Iraq. In the 6th century BC, Khorosh, the king of Anshan, a small kingdom in southwest Iran, rebelled against his overlords the Median Empire, conquered them, and then conquered the Lydian Empire of Anatolia and the Neo-Babylonian Empire in Iraq and Syria, thus creating the largest and most diverse empire the world had ever seen and adopting the title of kshayatiya kshayatiyanam king of kings the linguistics of the title are very interesting you can see them on the encyclopedia iranica online but basically the word ksha there is related to the sanskrit word ksha in kshetra and kshatriya which we saw evolving in episode 2 isn't that crazy now returning to kurosh How the hell did this individual this Kurosh this Cyrus ensure loyalty from all these proud teeming diverse peoples let's hear what the man says in one of the most famous records from his reign I am Cyrus king of the world great king mighty king king of Babylon king of Sumer and Akkad king of the four quarters the son of cambyses king of anshad grandson of cyrus descendant of theispes of an eternal line of kingship whose rule 
Baal and Naboo love, whose kingship they desire for their heart's pleasure. When I entered Babylon in a peaceful manner, I took up my lordly abode in the royal palace amidst rejoicing and happiness. Marduk, the great god of Babylon, established as his destiny for me, a magnanimous heart of one who loves Babylon, a magnanimous heart of one who loves Babylon, and I daily attended to his worship. My vast army marched into Babylon in peace. I did not permit anyone to frighten the people of Sumer and Akkad. I sought the welfare of the city of Babylon and all its sacred centers. As for the citizens of Babylon, upon whom my predecessor imposed a corvée, which was not the God's wish and not befitting them, I relieved their weariness and freed them from their service. Marduk, the great god of Babylon, rejoiced over my good deeds. What Cyrus is doing here is, first, declaring his royal credentials and a right to rule, second, establishing a favored relationship with the gods, third, claiming that Marduk, the god of Babylon, himself invited him to take over Babylon, and fourth, reversing the policies of his predecessor, which he claims were oppressive and hated by the people. It's a very smart way for a foreign king to ingratiate himself to a new audience, and it was written in cuneiform, the same script that the Babylonians had already been using for centuries. Remember all these factors because we'll see them replicated in India in future episodes. Interestingly, Kurosh also found a large number of Israeli Jews living in Babylon, having been uprooted from Jerusalem during the expansion of the new Babylonian Empire. He allowed them to return to their home in peace, thus establishing his new empire as extremely multicultural and multi-ethnic from the get-go. A later successor of Kurosh or Cyrus, known as Darya Yavush or Darius, created the real backbone of the Persian Empire by establishing a vast imperial bureaucracy and a system of satrapies, dividing the empire into a number of provinces and establishing regional governors, administrators and generals who reported to him. All these might seem kind of commonplace to us given that we've heard about so many mighty empires in previous seasons of Echoes, but at the time they were pretty innovative. If you remember in the first season of Echoes, we talked a lot about these Indo-Scythian or Shaka kings who called themselves Mahakshatrapa or Great Satrap. Well, the term Satrap that these guys were using comes from Darius's Persian Empire. Darius also set up a network of spies, known as the Emperor's Friends, to keep an eye on any potential disloyalty, just to make sure that his generosity towards his subjects wasn't being taken advantage of. He took care to encourage trade, setting up vast highways, messenger relays and caravanserais to encourage the circulation of peoples and goods, because these were extremely profitable things when he had united so many diverse peoples, markets and trading goods. He finally established standard gold and silver currencies, whose value everyone trusted in. This again is quite an innovation. Coinage was relatively new at this point, and especially the circulation of coinage across such a vast landmass made it easy for people to indulge in extremely complex financial transactions, thus vastly increasing the amount of economic activity that could happen within Persian territories. Now, all of this was falling apart by Alexander's time, 
making it easy for this chap from the middle of nowhere to conquer this vast world. But that's a whole other story. Now let's come back to India again after this quick tour of the rest of the world. Clearly, the Gangaridae who terrified the Greeks ruled over some form of unified territorial empire. As we understand it from extremely fragmentary sources, the ceaseless wars of the Magadhan elite created powerful new dynamics which they were unable to control. The royal dynasties at the top were full of ambitious and ruthless princes and ministers who rarely hesitated to kill their fathers or patrons at the slightest hint of weakness. Archaeology tells us that currency was beginning to be used, suggesting more widespread trade. Men, often from humble backgrounds, rose through the ranks of the vast Magadhan army because effective officers were always needed, and one of these men, the son of a Baba, according to Greek sources, killed the blue-blooded king of Magadha and established himself as ruler. This man was known as Mahapadmananda, or Ugrasena, and he and his eight sons seemed to have consolidated their power over the Gangetic Plains and then launched aggressive campaigns into foreign territory to seize loot to keep their subjects happy. They seem to have left quite a mark. Remember the Sangam poetry of the Tamil country which we heard in season 1 at the turn of the millennium? Some of it seems to preserve memories of these Nanda kings. Can that wealth and treasure be compared to the riches of prosperous Pataliputra of the greatly famous and battle-victorious Nandas that were hidden in the Ganga. Did you see him? Or did you hear from someone who saw him? I desire to know the truth. Tell me exactly what you know about the gold-filled city of Pataliputra where elephants with white tusks play in the Sonai River. From whose mouth did you hear of my lover's coming? Did you see him? There are some more clues about the Nandas in other literature, such as the Puranas, composed by assorted Brahmin groups centuries later. These invariably hate the Nandas because they were low-born and didn't pay much respect to the glorious Sanskari Brahmins. Interestingly, they also claim that Mahapadmananda ate or destroyed Kshatriya clans, seeing him as something new, something different from the staid world of the aristocratic Ganarajyas and petty kingdoms that used to dominate the Gangetic Plains. Sadly, no records actually left by Ananda ruler have survived to this day. So, looking at what made the Persian Empire tick and taking these fragments of evidence from elsewhere, what can we guess about the Nandas? Firstly, they gave zero shits about the old ways of doing things. Secondly, they were immensely successful and wealthy. And thirdly, they were immensely militarily successful. In fact, we even have an inscription from Odisha a few centuries after the Nandas claiming that a Nanda king conquered territory and built a canal there. So here's what I think about the Nandas. The cities of Magadha, especially Pateligama, which we saw Buddha visit in episode 6, had grown significantly over decades of expansion. Pataligama, now known as Pataliputra, was transformed into an imperial center with crowds and markets ravenous for goods and loot by the aristocratic Magadhan kings. The aristocrats proved unpopular or oppressive, as the old man in Kosala in the beginning of this episode seemed to suggest, and these men from below rose up 
toppled them and instituted wide military and administrative reforms that vastly improved trade and the circulation of goods across the Gangetic Plains. They transformed this vast region from the patchwork of tiny states that we've seen into the beginnings of a true empire, one that was so wealthy that even the Tamils far to the south were in awe of it, and as the protests we heard seems to indicate, visited and traded with. But history is always written by the victors. Alexander, we saw, was a brilliant, brutish man remembered as an ideal king despite his savagery in Persia and India. And the Nandas, though they seem to have been a powerful and prosperous polity, did not survive. In fact, they were only the first of many empires to rise to rule over the fertile Gangetic Valley system. Because taking advantage of the chaos of Alexander's invasion, new peoples were rising to power. Among them was a man of shadowy origins, the man who would take the imperial system of the Gangetic Plains and expand it to regions it had never seen before. He would be India's very own answer to Kurosh, and just as Kurosh claimed to be rescuing the world from unjust rulers before him, this new Indian emperor would erase the memories of those who came before and replace them with his own. His name was Chandragupta Maurya and we'll follow his career and explore his world next week. How will history remember you? As a generous patron of creative and critical stories that need your help to be told, I hope, head over to buymeacoffee.com slash akanisetti, that's A-K-A-N-I-C-T-T-I. You'll find a link in the description to help me make more content like Echoes of India. And of course, thank you to these legends, Srivatsa Gundala, Bharat Godihal, Sneha Gantla, and Jatir Narde for their monthly support. Listen to Echoes of India, Yuddha, and other awesome podcasts on the IVM network. Find them on the IVM podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts.